Welcome to On The Move, the global mobility podcast brought to you by Vialto Partners. Vialto is your ally in mobility, tax and immigration solutions. We spark meaningful growth for your business and your people. At Vialto, we push the boundaries of global mobility, powering positive outcomes in business and beyond. Our teams partner closely with you, providing extensive expertise and seamless tech-enabled experiences so you can mobilize a dynamic global workforce and unlock potential. Hi everyone and welcome to On The Move, a Vialto Partners Global Mobility Podcast. I'm Sharon Kundi and I lead our immigration practice at Vialto Partners and I have some of our superstars uh, from the immigration practice here with me today. We're going to be running a series which is called The Fight for Global Talent and it's really about how you get the right people with the right talent to the right place in what's an incredibly difficult immigration landscape at the moment with economic and political challenges as well. In today's episode, we'll be setting the scene for the rest of the series, focusing on what we've all experienced over the last couple of years and predicting what we think will present itself over the coming months as organisations fight for global talent. Before we get stuck in, I'm going to let the rest of the team introduce themselves. Great, thanks Sharon. Uh, so my name is Raj Mann um, and I'm one of the directors based out of our London office. I lead our global advisory services um, at Vialto and that, that kind of encompasses a lot of things. Um, so crisis management, thought leadership, strategic support, working really closely with Hugo who's about to introduce himself as well. Um, in terms of other things about me, I'm also a researcher in migration policy and I'm doing my PhD uh, research at the moment. So yeah, I'll hand it over to Hugo, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, fine. Thanks. Uh, th thanks, Raj. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, Hugo. I'm based in Amsterdam um, and I work in the uh, obviously Dutch then uh, immigration uh, inbound uh, practice and uh, specialised in Dutch immigration. But next to that, I um, also do uh, Europe advisory work. So I uh, work quite closely with, with Raj actually uh, on, on uh, Europe advisory matters and uh, also then focusing on things like crisis management or complex advisory things. Um, and really working closely with clients on their on their policies and broader issues in terms of immigration. That's a little bit about me. I'll hand over to Rico. Thanks, Hugo. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rico Fontana. I'm a director based in Houston, Texas. I'm also wearing a couple of different hats. Uh, first of all, on the immigration side, uh, also looking over over uh, coordination of our US-based clients, and then as well helping to to manage our Latin uh, practice. In addition to that, I'm also still dabbling a little bit in managed services and policy advisory work for our clients uh, worldwide. Thank you, Rico. Now, I'd like to just focus on how we kind of got in, into this into the work that we do um, and how we got into immigration. Now, I'm a, a mobility tax person by background. I moved into immigration about 10 or 11 years ago, quite unintentionally because I was on maternity leave. And, and when I came back from maternity leave, Barely being able to string a sentence together, um, one of the partners asked me whether I'd like a, a, a secondment into immigration and um, 11 years on, I'm still here. So it's quite accidental, but really for me, it's been around like, you know, every day things are different. Our world just becomes topsy-turvy and we, and we start again, we rip, up, we rip up however we're doing things and have a blank sheet of paper and, and, and redesign the way that we, we operate and the way that we deliver to clients. So that's what you know, keeps me going and what I found really, really interesting. But Raj, I'll come to you first. How did you get into immigration? Yeah, so I, I suppose my um, journey into immigration, um, 
I don't know. There's always there's always this kind of story with people who work in uh, in immigration, and they sort of say that they fell into it. I'm probably someone who chose to jump. I think <laughs> so I've always been interested in immigration, um, and it's come from I think personally from a place of real genuine interest and fascination in why people move and why people choose to stay and why people are forced to move. Right. So um, so my grandparents were impacted by partition in India. Um, and they were made refugees and they that that journey has always been part of our family story. Um, and so it's always been ingrained in us in terms of, you know, living that kind of migrant, ch- the child of migrants. And that's always been something that's been really sort of uh, central to, to us growing up. But I suppose in terms of business immigration, I worked, um, I did a sort of a law degree. Um, and then immediately my first internship was a, a period of work was in um, corporate immigration. And I've been working in the same space for about 17 years. And more recently, really looking at migration policy. And I think that's really sort of kind of motivated my decision to do sort of further study and research in migration policy, kind of going back full circle to the whole, you know, personal side of why why I'm really fascinated with immigration is just looking at crisis and how the world is so volatile and, and unpredictable and how that really impacts people's lives and sort of day-to-day experiences so yeah again I think I chose to jump into immigration um, I'm genuinely really fascinated um, with the way the world seems to sometimes get smaller and smaller but borders can be harder and harder and how that impacts people's lives yeah and it's, it's so interesting working with you Raj as well because we've got such different approaches and different, such different aspects but um, it's great how you you are studying and you're bringing kind of that academic lens as well to the stuff that we do every day and I find that that fascinating and I know soon we'll be introducing you as Dr Raj rather than just Raj. I, I look forward to that. I look forward to that day when we have a we have a doctor in our immigration plan. Hugo, I know um, you know we know each other really well, you're based in the Netherlands, you were educated in the UK. How did you yeah how did you get into to immigration? I guess when I speak to you you, you have such a global outlook but how did you how did you choose to specialize in what we what we now will do yeah that you can say things happen accidentally but the but in my case a bit like like Roger's case it wasn't accidental at all you know as as really gave away i i grew up as a child of expats right so my parents are dutch but i grew up in in, in the uk and then in french speaking belgium so sort of different languages different cultures and all that kind of stuff and uh, i i realized quite early on that i needed that in, in my life after school so going into university and and then uh, of course, then looking at what I wanted to do and it, like work-wise, I wanted to see if I could combine that kind of international aspect and international view with something to do with law and something with substance. It was actually during my graduation ceremony that somebody who was doing an internship in a corporate in immigration said, hey, would you be interested in uh, joining me? Um, then one thing led to another and I sort of never looked back. Um, and it, yeah, it was kind of, I don't know, it was kind of serendipity in, in, in a way. But then on the other hand, I always knew that I would do something in, in international and this kind of thing really, really suits me, really fits with me. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I, I feel very privileged actually to be able to do something that, that I enjoy so much. I really genuinely do. I have lots of, sort of moments with the Raj when we were sort of working on client stuff and then we just have these little little mini nerd out moments. I just love that, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's really cool to sort of bring, be able to bring that kind of side of, our, of ourselves in, into work. Right, and Rico, of all of us, I guess you've got the broadest experience, right? So you were, if I, if I get this right, you started off as an immigration professional. You then went in-house to do a broad, broader mobility role, went back into practice to do a, a global mobility managed service role. And now you're kind of doing, you're double hatting between this kind of managed service stroke immigration 
role in LATAM as well, which is a tricky, tricky region as well. So you do seem to be a jack of all trades. I try to be, yeah. And for me, like like my other two colleagues, it, it you know, it started in kindergarten. Uh, you know, everybody else wanted to become a police officer, astronaut, and fireman, professional soccer player. And I figured, you know, that's just going to be too crowded those fields. So why not try immigration, right? So. No, all, all kidding aside, um, I grew up in Switzerland, so, you know, with that shiny red passport, immigration for me growing up was the guy at the border asking my dad, you know, how many cases of wine he had in the car. Or, you know, if we took a flight, maybe get a stamp somewhere, right, and get in. But it really was never an issue. So the next part of my story is actually a little bit ironic, because so with, with that history in mind, when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s, I uh, worked for a travel agency. I always wanted to do something international too, like Hugo, and was really focused on traveling. And that travel agency sent me on an assignment to New York. And again, given the absence of my understanding of immigration, I didn't really bat an eye when they said, yeah, you can go on a B-1 visa, right, to the U.S. So, um, you know, sent me on a one-year assignment on a basically business visitor visa, Luckily, I wised up pretty quickly to that and, and, you know, started really kind of asking the questions, found a lawyer that helped me and um, in essence became my first immigration case myself, right? Trying to, to figure out my status, make sure I was legal um, and, you know, then went through the whole U.S. immigration process, starting with an L, moving to a green card and then citizenship. And, and so I really kind of understand to on a personal level you know, how much time, how much efforts and what emotional toll it can take on people to go through the immigration process, right? Uh, even if it's for, for a business-sponsored work, you know, refugee status aside, right? I mean, it's just emotionally taxing when you pick up, move, and you, you need to wait on a government agency to issue um, documents. So, but yeah, ultimately, my, my real entry into immigration was uh, working at the Swiss consulate in New York. So I managed the visa office there for a couple of years before then joining a, an immigration provider and then Sharon, as you said, I moved in-house, managed uh, immigration as well as the rest of kind of mobility scope for a, for a Fortune uh, 150 company before then joining uh, Navialto uh, and, and really kind of happy to be back purely in the or primarily in the immigration space where it really is my passion as well. And, and as Raj and Yuga mentioned, I think what gives me the greatest satisfaction on the immigration side is just that you I feel like we're personally impacting people's life, right? We're, make, we're taking a little bit of that emotional stress and helping them, you know, understand what's going on, hopefully making their lives a little bit easier as they move. And, and that for me is probably the, the biggest reward in this case. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Rico. I just, um, you know, when we reflect on, you know, our backgrounds and, and what we've experienced in the last couple of years, and I'll go back to my experience, I guess that's my reference point is um, the reason I'm here, the reason I'm doing immigration is because things change so often in, in the landscape. Um, we never have any two days that are the same. Um, I find that we're constantly being challenged and changes to immigration policy, particularly when you look at things through a political lens, really do, does keep us on our toes. Um, and it's fantastic to really feel like you're doing something that's on the cutting edge and that's really making a difference. I think in various ways, all five of us have been, uh, or four of us, sorry, have, have been tested and challenged over the last couple of years, right? We, we've all worked together in client situations where we've dealt with the impact of Brexit. We've dealt with kind of borders closing as a result of the pandemic. We've dealt with emergency measures being taken taken in the US. We've dealt with, you know, the difficulties that the war in Ukraine has, has brought both in Eastern Europe and across across the continent. 
I mean, you couldn't really make this stuff up. You know, it's been one thing after another after another. Given we are now where we are, and there's still an incredible amount of uncertainty out there, we're still dealing with the war in Ukraine. We still see sanctions imposed on Russia. And so that's really has turned certain things on, on, on its head when you look at how our clients are moving people around. And what we hear from our clients is now that we are facing kind of more economically challenging circumstances, and all of our clients are focused on growth strategy and you know how do we grow as quickly as we can how do we get people into emerging markets because more so than ever we need to build back stronger than we were a couple of years ago what do you think will be the biggest kind of challenges and opportunities in in our kind of mobility world over the next the next year or two um i'll come to raj first because i'm going to ask you with from a from your academic with your academic hat hat on um, and then I might ask Hugo and Rico from a kind of from a client perspective, if that's okay. Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really interesting question. I think I think just thinking about it from a in terms of so you you you, you sort of talked about a little bit about crisis and how the world's changed recently in the geopolitics and and how much unpredictability there seems to be in the world at the moment. Um, and I don't know whether it's just short memories, but it feels like we're living through a time at the moment, especially in the last couple of years, that feel a bit unprecedented. And the impact that that's had on immigration policy and the ability to, to cross borders feels quite intense in a way that I certainly can't remember. I mean, after 9-11 and the financial crisis in 2008, I think there were periods of, you know, certainly periods of sustained and unpredictability in terms of travel and, and migration policy. But I think what we're feeling at the moment is around the world, and as you mentioned, the Ukraine war coming out of the pandemic, there seems to be this, this really kind of growing sense of, um, of nationalism and protectionism. And we've talked about protectionism a lot with our clients because we're seeing that really play out in terms of, in the immigration space, in terms of things like you know, greater quotas in place, more resident labour marking tests, um, and you know, even in countries and territories where they don't have a formalised, you know, resident labour market test as part of the work permit application, we're starting to see more and more governments and authorities saying to 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 global uh, companies, hey, you know, we have all these unemployed local nationals. Why are you considering Joe Blogs from you know the states or the UK? Why not, you know, somebody here, we've got their CV, we know they're unemployed, why are you not considering this person for sort of, you know, a managerial or middle management role? And so I think that that kind of insertion of governments into those kinds of decisions is, is something that is interesting. And I think we're going to see more of it. In terms of what I'm kind of interested in seeing over the, over the coming year or so, I think it is around that whole fight for talent piece. Um, and in particular, around the idea of brain drain, and I know I've spoken about this before with, with certain groups, but in certain migration kind of spaces, um, there's a real focus on the fight for talent. And the idea is, hey, and this comes from countries and territories as well, where the UK, Canada, Australia, the EU, they're all looking at how they can use immigration as a tool to reattract and retain highly skilled migrants from around the world as a way of kind of boosting the economy. Now, in a lot of those places, they're also balancing this you know the, the the protectionist angle. The the don't don't kind of annoy your your electorate, where especially if there are higher unemployment rates at the moment. But I think what's going to be really interesting in that kind of space and conversation is 
what companies doing when they are looking to attract certain talent from certain parts of the world, particularly if you're a company or a country in the global north, and you're looking to attract um, talent from potentially global south countries. And this conversation about migration and immigration being used as quite an extractive tool um, is a really interesting one. And I think we're going to see greater focus on this. And what that does to the local community. So there's so much talk at the moment about ESG and and, and CSR and all these sort of acronyms that, that companies and corporates are really sort of prioritizing at the moment. And one of the points when it comes to ESG is, is, the, is the social element, right? So if migration and immigration policy has an absolute impact on the local community or a community in terms of highly skilled migrants can come into a location and they can immediately upskill, you know, in terms of the plans that are in place, look to upskill uh, local labor markets. And in a lot of places like Indonesia, as an example, if you're obtaining a work permit for a foreign national, there is an expectation on you to upskill 10 local nationals. I think we're going to see more of that because of the climate, because of the situation, because places are becoming more protectionist, because there is this need to continue to attract top talent, but it's being balanced with, with local with local electorate needs. So yeah, I think this kind of this real kind of conversation around what it means to attract top talent and balancing that with things like protectionism and things like securing and not being seen to be accelerating brain drain because I don't I think it's going to be a real area of, of conversation um, going forward yeah no really interesting Raj and when you talk you just talk about protectionism and you were focused on kind of what we're seeing in many regions but you know we're seeing probably more so in Asia Pac would you would you agree that that some parts of Asia Pac is very much open for business but others are you know we really need to um, protect our local labour market Rico, I'll come to you because in the Americas, it's you know, a completely different approach. But what we do see is Canada is very much, we're open for business. And it's quite, it's, you know, it's a stark contrast, contrast from what we see in other locations. Can you just share your experience around what you think will happen in, in your part of the world and how your clients will be impacted over the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. And, and Canada certainly is a very interesting example, right? And, and actually, I think just over the last couple of days, they announced that last year was the, the, the largest growth in Canadian history in terms of population. And it was pretty much all immigration that, that triggered that growth, right? So clearly, there's a recognition that given relatively low birth rates in, in certain parts of the world, right, we do need that influx of, of talent. Um, but then the interesting part in Canada is also, right, that uh, can buy a house right away, right? So real estate, they're putting some restrictions on that and other locations are following suit. So to, to Raj's point, right, it's it's a rec- recognition. We need the talent, we need the, to bring in the people, but how do we balance that then in a way that isn't, um, you know, leading to much more protectionistic uh, tendencies in the country. Latin, on the other hand, you know, we haven't really seen too much of that. It's it's actually politically, if you look at, at Latin, it's it's shifting the other way from, from most other areas in the world. So um, we do see some protectionism in, in terms of just wanting to make sure rebuilding the, the economy post-COVID, right? Making sure the local workforce gets gets their jobs back. But we don't necessarily see politically the same rhetoric and, and you know, language that goes with some of the, the more um, right-wing shifts in, in other locations. But in terms of client... Was... Sorry, Arsh. Sorry, Rika. I was just going to say, just on that point around um, Canada in particular, 
Um, I think it was one of our, our US and, and North American colleagues was, was speaking recently, and I found this so interesting. They, um, they were saying that if you look at Canada, especially in comparison with the US, there's a real like bucking the, the trend um, when it comes to protectionism. I think there was a stat that both Canada and the US had, had looked to hire, um, they'd admitted 275,000 um, immigrants in 2022. But the U.S. has got something like 10 times um, the population size, right? So just to put into perspective how kind of, quote unquote, open doors Canada seems to be at the moment. And it's one of those locations that places like the U.K. and Australia um, and Singapore are really looking to in terms of how they seem to be doing it right. Um, and yeah, I just I found that really interesting when you're talking about Canada in particular, um, it's a very interesting one. Yeah, no, just to challenge that, um, and I guess what I'm picking up from client conversations in certain industries is how much do we think if we look at the immigration numbers comparatively between the US and Canada how, how much do we think the US is impacted by global skill shortage as well in certain industries because whilst this is global fight for talent that fight for talent is there is stronger in certain industries for example technology um, where, where we see you know technology is part of manufacturing manufacturing processes there is that real real shortage of global skills so do we think that's impacted how open you know I think the US wants to be seen as open for business but how open is it really if, if they can't get the right people with the right skills my kind of um, thoughts on it is that the US have, have always been well recently been really slow to kind of use immigration as a tool to attract talent they don't really need to the US immigration system is pretty convoluted and complex Right. I mean, we see our US colleagues preparing a petition and it's like, you know, yay thick in terms of, you know, how many documents they're preparing. But because just by virtue of how many open roles they have in the US, um, it's still seen as that number one kind of go to place for a num you know, for foreign talent. And, and you see that whether that will still be the same in five, 10 years time, I, I don't know. And I think there's certainly a shift um, in terms of perception um, that's happening, um, given sort of current politics over there it is seen as that number one place still I would say for a lot of, of top talent and so in terms of how much the US need to do in terms of making immigration you know using immigration as a tool probably not as much as say elsewhere in the world right it's not it's not about cheaper it's not going to be cheaper um, visa fees or quicker processing times that are going to encourage more people to come to the US they're wanting to be in the US so yeah I think that's my kind of Maybe it's sort of just an assumption, but my, my, my assumption and gut feeling is that the US still remains inherently attractive to, to people around the world. Well, I think, Raj, at least we like to think that, right? I think there's definitely still that <laughs> yeah. feeling that, you yeah, know, people do want to come to the US, right? What, what do you mean we have to make it more attractive, right? Everybody wants to come. So, you know, right or wrong, I think there's still a little bit of that, but I, I think you hit it on the, on the head there, right? I think... There's still, you know, a lot of very interesting companies, a lot of very interesting jobs that people just want to do, right? So I think there's an inherent attractiveness to coming to the U.S. regardless of the, or, or despite the immigration system, probably. But as you said, right, is that going to be the same in 10, 15 years, especially, and going back to your Canadian example, if you think about that, you know, somebody, let's say from India or China can go to Canada and basically walk away as a citizen of Canada within five, six years, right, versus waiting for a green card for 20 years in the U.S., right? So at some point, I fear it's going to catch up with the U.S., right? And as jobs become more mobile and, and more remote work is being implemented within those companies, 
is the U.S. going to maintain that attractiveness? I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, and I think that point on this, the, the security of status, again, post-pandemic has been such a conversation piece for, for governments and for immigration professionals lobbying governments and, and us included, right? We've, we've, we've had these conversations in Australia and the UK and, and um, across Europe where we're saying to, to governments that we're, we're speaking with, hey, if you are serious about looking to attract and importantly retain top talent, you've really got to look seriously at, at your settlement, your routes to settlement. Um, and I think, Rika, that point there about, you know, the process to obtain PR or green card status in the US just, just feels immediately complicated and lengthy. And whereas in other locations, you know, not so much. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really, a really interesting point, particularly post pandemic and post these periods of crisis, security of status for people who are globally mobile, I think is going to become more and more and more important because the, it, there is also this kind of correlation with high skilled talent. Be, you know, there, there's an assumption that they're going to work across borders. And so pinning someone down, making them have to sort of be anchored to a jurisdiction for X amount of years so they can obtain some sort of, of, of settled status seems like it's kind of had its day. And I think that I think all, uh, jurisdictions around the world, if they are really thinking about attracting and retaining talent, may need to kind of be a bit more flexible um, with, with their settlement routes. But that, again, I guess the flip side to that, Raj, yeah. is, is though how much are those digital nomad visas going to stay around, right? Are they kind of on work because of the, the pandemic now? Or is that really going to be a tool that Congress can deploy in the long run? So that, that will be another interesting thing to watch. But but that that might... So if we're just, just to add to that a particular point, I found that quite interesting because um, that could be a bit of a chicken and egg as well. Because it, it might also depend on how interesting clients or businesses find... Uh, that remote working policy, right? And uh, under how much pressure they come from their, their employees. What I've seen over the past years, I, I suppose, and especially with the recent crisis with first COVID-19 and then Russia-Ukraine in the, in, the, in the Europe region, is that um, businesses really focus on the current main big problem. And they just, you know, like the global mobility or HR departments, focus on resolving this current big burning issue. And maybe the big burning issue could then become, well, what do we do with that employee value proposition? In this current fight for talent, do we need to make sure that that, that there's this this kind of remote working policy, and how can we push the borders of that? Like, how can we make sure that people can be as flexible as possible? And that could then lead to questions being asked of governments, actually, um, who then might want to attract certain types of businesses, maybe more tech-driven in, um, industry, for example, um, more startups, that kind of thing, like really interesting businesses that could then develop their economy further. Um, and I think that could be one of the burning issues, and that could then in turn lead to certain policy changes on the, on the government side. But really, it, um, I don't know, it, that could all sort of be, be, be overtaken by some kind of new crisis, and then, and then this kind of remote working thing then kind of gets forgotten. It can, it can happen, we don't know. I, I agree with you, Hugo, in that I, I wouldn't look at it from a, um, that the business is driving the remote work agenda or um, individual employees are driving it, but governments will need to have digital nomad visas to rebuild their economies and get an extra slice of the tax of tax share, right? The more people who are coming in doing fairly lucrative jobs, sitting in their countries paying tax is, is really going to be critical for governments to rebuild their economies, especially as we're going into a downturn now. So th there's that side of things as well. But Hugo, just coming to you in terms of 
when we look at the EU, you, you work really, really closely with the um, with the EU Commission. You've, you've got your ear close to the ground. What's your take on how open the EU is for business? And also, it'd be good to get your comments on, as a European, what you're seeing the impact of Brexit be. So obviously, Raj and I have a view, being being in the UK, we, we can definitely feel the impact of Brexit. But it'd be good to get your views as being someone in mainland Europe as to what you see the impact being. Mm, yeah, well, yeah, that's 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 a good. Way. Take the first one first. Um, I, I think I can um, easily quote the European Commission themselves in saying that they're losing the fight for talent. So, so Europe and then the EU is losing the fight for talent. Uh, they're they're losing against Asia and they're they're losing against U.S. North America. Um, and it, it definitely feeds into what Raj was saying um, about how the, the U.S. simply by the fact of I don't know the 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 the, the country itself. They are attracting talent, and they are attracting um, I don't know, the, the the students, the graduates, and then um, all, all the startup and tech, etc. That comes along with that. Uh, so the the EU is trying to find ways in order to to, to, to tackle that. Has identified certain sectors um, and certain industries in Europe that would then need need a bit more support. We look at healthcare, logistics, IT, digital, all that kind of stuff, and and especially then looking towards the future towards. Um, supporting the, the the new green and digital and, and agenda that the European Union is trying to drive in a more general sense. Um, but the issue they have is that the European Commission, as the executive body of the European Union, are proposing lots of pretty, pretty good pieces of le- legislation, really sort of well-founded and well-researched based, based on, on really good detailed statistics. Um, but then that gets watered down by member states when it can get to up, to, up to discussion between member states that then all or nearly all have to agree on the on the legislation that gets put forward. So what you get is, for example, um, uh, some proposal for a more EU-wide permit with a lot of mobility maybe possible between member states. And then in the end, the member states themselves say, well, we'll keep the name of the permit, but then uh, we can each tweak our own salary thresholds and make sure that the degree requirements are maybe a bit more difficult than the national um, immigration categories. And basically what, what countries are then, are then doing within Europe is uh, fighting amongst themselves to see if they can get the most uh, interesting immigration category for themselves, then attract talent um, in their own country, um, rather than looking broader towards just outside the EU, then they may be looking more towards themselves. And again, that's kind of protectionist trend. So there's a, so like in, in a general sense, there's a push and pull between the European Union and, and, and member states. And um, I, I don't think it get, gets discussed uh, as, as openly as I think it should, um, because I'm, I'm very much sort of pro-European in, in, in that sense, because I think if, uh, as a region, we're, we're going to make a mark in, 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 in the world, we have to do it together. I mean, I, I live in, in, in the Netherlands, where we're a pretty small country, um, so we like to actually make a big difference in, in, in the world and attract in, like, big talent and big businesses. We're going to have to work together with our neighbours. Um, and that then, of course, leads me then to the to the next question about Brexit. Um, I think that's, uh, um, of course, a fact that has to be dealt with, right? Um, and it was it was quite clear from from 2016 the reason um, uh, why the why people voted to to leave was to take control of money, laws, and borders. So that borders part that was obviously going to be a driver in 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 the whole negotiations. And it was very very clear something was going to change. Was it going to be a hard Brexit, soft Brexit? There are all the, all these discussions going on, but we knew something was going to change, um, and that change has now happened. It's 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 quite clear that uh, that UK nationals are subject to new immigration rules when travelling into the EU and vice versa. But what I've seen is that the 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 the, the big issue 
was that um, Brexit happened during the pandemic. So the, the, the change in rules and the kind of falling away of free movement between the UK and, 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 and the rest of Europe fell away during COVID. Uh, and that's, of course, a period when there was no travel possible anyway due to the travel restrictions and everybody was working from home, etc. So then when, the, when COVID kind of ended, people forgot about Brexit. And that did lead to literate clients on the phone on, on the 2nd of January, like, yeah, our CFO is uh, stuck at the airport. What, what to do? Uh, and they got questioned for, for three hours. Got them through, but still, like, it, it was a reminder to people, like, look, this does have, have an impact. And what I'm seeing now, quite, quite surprisingly, actually, now that we're sort of really properly out of, out, out of COVID, businesses are continuing to ask questions about like, what, what are the consequences and, and, and how can we deal with this? And really more from a policy perspective, there's a lot of business between the UK and, and, and the EU. And businesses are really practical. They just want to make sure that people that might have a dual role between London and Paris, for example, can undertake that role, like do part, part of their management in London, part of their management for a team in, in, in Paris. And how to do that if there's intermittent travel and, and, it, and it, it, it's a new role that's unrelated to something that was that was pre-Brexit. So that, that's a that's a practical thing. And, and um, uh, what was interesting is that I was speaking to a uh, to, to an organization that represents businesses between the Netherlands and, and, and the UK. And um, they were talking to some some partner organizations who um, also kind of involved in UK EU relations and people mobility was top of the agenda. And I was quite surprised by that. And, and uh, I have the feeling that maybe the resolution of Northern Ireland um, issues could lead to the EU maybe taking a slightly softer approach, being open to maybe being a bit more flexible in, in interpretation of new rules for travellers from the UK into the EU. Uh, but that does remain to be seen, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this with certain people because I'm definitely um, a, a, a proponent of like open business, right, and, 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 and making sure people can undertake those roles. No, I'd agree. There's certainly things are looking more hopeful in the, in the last couple of weeks than they ever had before. So um, I'm not calling myself a nerd, but we could we could... Hugo's term was nerd out and we could have continue having a nerd out for hours and hours on, <laughs> on this stuff. I guess, you know, kind of to bring all of this back to a practical sense for our, you know, for our clients, because ultimately that's what we do. You know, we're, we're really interested in this stuff, but we then have to reinterpret all this for our clients and help them with practical, practical steps, implementing internal policies, etc. So a question, I'm going to come to you, Rico, first, but then Raj and Hugo, same question for you. If you were on the other side, so if you were a client, if you were a head of mobility, given everything we've discussed today and given all the challenges that we're, we're facing and given the different approaches that are now emerging in terms of government policy, what would you say is kind of number one on your on your to-do list to, to make sure you continue to mobilise your global talent? I'm, I'm, I'm always bad at coming up with a number one. So I think I would probably have three items really on, on top. I think number one is, is just help the business budget um, you know, it's not going to get cheaper to do immigration. Uh, if you're, you know, so the U.S. proposal uh, L infra company visa would about increase by over two hundred percent, H one B by over seventy percent. You know, if you have a significant uh, program into the U.S., those are fairly significant numbers, right? To help the business budget for that, um, and then I think. From a compliance perspective, as remote work takes hold, right, just really make sure you understand where your people are, what are the impacts, not just from an immigration perspective, but also from an establishment tax, et cetera, right? Make sure you're on top and, and you really understand where your population is. And then kind of related to that a little bit is just 
are your policies, and not just immigration, but in general, mobility policies, are they still fit for purpose, right? I think one thing we've seen coming out of COVID is that people get really comfortable with a more balanced uh, work-life um, arrangement and, and spend, wanting to spend more time at home. So, you know, certain industries that might be very accustomed to just throw cash at uh, employees to go on an assignment somewhere, right? Some of that might lose some of its attractiveness and people rather go home more often, right? So just make sure you really kind of understand where your population is, what, what your employees value the most and, and reevaluate your policies. Are they still fit for purpose? Thanks, Rico. Raj? Well, I think for me, um, and probably no surprise to you, Sharon, <laughs> given the last couple of years, I think crisis management is um, would be what I'd be focused on, I think, in terms of highest priority. And the reason I say that is, well, one, I'm probably really influenced just because of the nature of the work that I'm doing at the moment with, with a lot of our clients in terms of spotting the unpredictabilities at the moment. But I also think, you know, frankly, we are in uncertain times at the moment and there is ongoing civil unrest. Um, there is going to be potentially more unpredictability caused by environmental disasters. And we're already seeing that play out in certain locations. And look, we're still in, there's still a war going on, right? And so the world is unpredictable. And I think whilst we're seeing more crises and we're seeing the bounce back perhaps be quicker, you know, we don't know what's around the corner. And I think one of the biggest lessons that's come out of both the COVID pandemic and the Ukraine war is that those of our clients who, you know, had a, had a handle on knowing where their global workforce was, knowing who they were um, and knowing who they need to support and had some level of, of framework. And I, and I hesitate to say policy when it comes to crisis management, because I think there's a danger of being a, a, too rigid in, in certain times. But a framework absolutely um, has been it sets out those clients that have, have, have got some sort of thought behind and, and had sort of dry runs when it comes to crisis management and those that, that hadn't, right? Um, so I would certainly put sort of crisis management at the top of the list. And I think it will trickle down into other areas. I think it's, it's good practice, first of all. I think it serves compliance needs and I think it ultimately serves business continuity. It's not a, uh, a waste of time to be looking at crisis management um, at the moment. And I think the ways that that, that that should happen is, do you do after action reviews? And we've been doing a lot of those with a number of our clients. So stress testing your processes and that they have been stress tested over the last three years, right? So what went well, what didn't go so well? How are your teams working? Do your travel desk talk to your immigration vendor? Because actually we're in times of crisis, there are two groups that will spend conversations on a daily basis with each other if they're if you have a, a kind of close-knit well-oiled um, crisis support and um, so encouraging that that sort of breakdown of silos in those times of crisis is really important and again like I said looking at looking at your sort of medium term plans when it comes to you know will you perhaps utilize digital nomad visas when you've got to mobilize something really somebody really quickly um, perhaps not in your standard assignment policy but maybe in times of crisis these are options that you need to be aware of and know that you need to utilize them and can utilize them when things don't go to plan. So yeah, crisis would be to yeah, I think what you're saying is it's not a luxury, it's essential, right? It's Absolutely. Not, it's not Absolutely. a luxury to, to have a policy in place and an evacuation yeah. policy in place. Yeah. Thanks, Raj. Hugo. Yeah, I was I was actually gonna gonna gonna, gonna echo Rico's point around uh, around like employee you mapping have to find and your own point. Away people. You can't yeah. copy somebody else's point. <laughs> 
and although I, I only have one point rather rather than three, so you know it's it it it's a bit of a more more specific approach. But but definitely um, knowing knowing where your people are is super important. I've seen that in the in in, in sort of the Brexit process, for example. You know where um, where people all, all of a sudden become an, an issue from an immigration perspective when they weren't an issue from an immigration perspective before, or at least not under the purview of, let's say, a global mobility department or HR or whatever. And we've seen that again through the Russia-Ukraine Russia situation um, with the war there and all of that. So um, that's super important. And um, especially when looking at things like uh, like remote working and, and, and other types of more policy-bound issues, um, more and more is sort of being linked to global mobility. Uh, even though them, uh, those groups might not want it, might not want to be sort of looking at particular sort of uh, more travel related and, um, issues, that is going to happen. Um, and I think that's going to happen more and more. Um, and that, that's obviously in, uh, in, in the broader context of things becoming more complicated. Uh, so we've seen it recently in, in Europe, for example, with the Posted Workers Directive. Uh, we're, we're seeing it with like new social security requirements, things like that. Uh, obviously, Brexit is one, one of them as well. You know, business travel being impacted very, very clearly. Then obviously with more different types of mobility, with remote working and, uh, and, 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 and all those kind of things. So I, I would really put, put that in pre-mapping literally and at the top. I think that like that's the first thing. I mean, if, when, there's, when there's a crisis, what's the first question that gets asked? Who is where? You know, and, and, and to, to have that like top of the agenda for me, that's like top, top, top. No question about it. Brilliant. Thanks to Rico Raj and Hugo and for our audience. This was just, you know, as I said, setting the background and laying the groundwork and, and scene setting for the rest of the series. And um, when we'll begin to kind of really deep dive into a few focus areas. So I hope you can join us all next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to On The Move, the global mobility podcast brought to you by Vialto Partners. For more information, please visit us at www.vialto.com. Vialto Partners and Vialto refers to the subsidiaries of CD&R, Galaxy UK Opco Limited, as well as the other members of the Vialto Partners global network. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance on matters of interest only. Vialto is not responsible for any errors or omissions, or for the results obtained from use of this information.